Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. I'm very privileged today to be joined by Lara Bryden, a naturopathic doctor and women's health expert and author based in currently New Zealand. Lara, so nice to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me, Kushla. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into women's health. Yeah, so as you can probably hear from my accent, I'm Canadian. Um, I trained as a naturopathic doctor in Toronto back in the 90s and then practiced in Canada for a few years, which is a little bit, it's quite different for naturopathic doctors there. We practice as kind of primary care practitioners. Then I lived in Sydney, Australia for a decade or and a half (laughs) and um, treated a lot of women there. So that's where my start of women's health focus began. I was just working Monday to Friday, nine to five, treating period problems. And out of all of that came my first book, Period Repair Manual. I moved to New Zealand about seven years ago. I'm actually a New Zealand citizen now. I just got my passport. I just always feel like sharing this. I'm super excited. So I live here now. I live in Christchurch. And I've since then written a second book called Hormone Repair Manual, which is for women over 40. Because there's something very interesting that happens around 40, which we may or may not have time to talk about today. So yeah, that's my background. I, lo- I still have consulting rooms. Um, in Christchurch where I treat patients because that's I feel like that's quite important for my work to be able to continue to see what works and what doesn't work for period problems and hormone problems. Very cool yes and great to have you on Christchurch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah are you still actively taking on clients for those who may want to seek your help? Only on and off. I have sort of a wait list that I open up once in a while. Um, and I have been really exclusively doing face-to-face. But, of course, that's changed. <laughs> we're, as you know, we're in our Omicron wave right now. So I've actually switched to telehealth just for you know, a month or so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, probably a good idea. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I've listened to a lot of the podcasts you've been on. I've read your books. I love what you talk about. So I've got a few different areas to discuss today. But being a sports dietitian, I was keen to actually dive into um, some of the information around female athletes and healthy periods. So... Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on what we know around or do we know anything training different intensities or different types during different phases of our menstrual cycle? Yes. Okay. As you may know, the research around that is pretty new. And on the one hand, there have been people making quite, you know, bold claims about training for your different phases of the cycle a lot of which is very interesting. Um, on the other hand, there's you know other researchers saying the effects from the different parts of the cycle are 
moderate, you know, relatively small. So we don't, we need to not get carried away with, you know, over thinking about that. That's my read of the literature so far. Another thing to bring into this is the pill has quite a big, well, has not, has not a big, but has an impact as well in terms of um, potentially impairing performance to some extent. So that's something we can circle back to. But um, in terms of training for the different phases of the message, like I'll just give you a very broad strokes because I'm not the absolute expert on that. I actually have some colleagues who are very know much more about that than me, which I'll, I'll give you the names at the end. You can have them on as your guests. Um, but so in the first pre obvious, so there's all you know there's sort of the period phase when we're quite low hormones. Um, and then pre-ovulatory or leading up to the middle of the cycle, we're high, quite high in estrogen compared to progesterone, and that has an anabolic effect. We get a little surge of testosterone right before ovulation, which actually has a quite a profound effect on resilience and potentially in performance. So we're more carb, um, what would be the word? Like, you know, we're less, um, less likely to be have insulin resistance or sort of more carb sensitive, I guess, with the word B, or leading up to ovulation. And so women, you can actually, um, yeah, you can sort of do better in terms of a a lower-carb diet in that first part of the cycle. Um, And there's also, as you probably know, around ovulation, with a high estrogen, there's a a soft tissue issue. Ligaments become kind of softer, and there's a greater chance of injury, which is another area of research. Then progesterone kicks in 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 the luteal phase, and it, progesterone has always been portrayed as, you know, the bad hormone, but it actually has some some benefits as well as anti-inflammatory. But um, we do become like we more like less to feel less good and do less well on a low carb diet in the second half of the, of the cycle because progesterone reduces insulin sensitivity to some degree. Not not I don't think profoundly, but. Um, the second half of the cycle is when we generally um, need to eat more carbs and eat more calories. Generally, our, our metabolic rate increases, body temperature increases. Around the low-carb intake and females, yes. so for, say, a female training 10, 15 hours a week, unfortunately, I still do see a lot of females pursuing very low-carb low diets. Yeah. Um, can you talk us through how this can potentially impact a female yeah. So again, so I'm in general, I'm not, I, I don't love my patients to be low carb, certainly not in a, a demographic of young women or athletes. I think lower carb has a place for the clinical state of insulin resistance, which is unlikely to be athletes actually. Um, but, you know, maybe women in perimenopause, women in their 40s, it's sort of a different conversation. But for this group, as you know, depending on the sport, low carb means you won't be fueling properly for the sport. And I guess from a period point of view, well, there is what I said. You can usually get away with it a bit better in terms of performance in the first, like pre-ovulatory compared to the chill phase. Like women might find their, you know, week before their period or few days before their period and suddenly just exhausted and not, you know, getting the same energy um, from their food as they as they are used to in the first part of the cycle. But the other part of it is there's the danger of disrupting the menstrual cycle. So that's where I come in because that's something I definitely see a lot. So the disruption of, and we're talking now a natural menstrual cycle, 
noting that pill bleeds are not period. So an induced bleed on contraceptive drugs is not what I'm talking about right now at all. And in fact, being on a combined a combined estrogen contraceptive that um, produces withdrawal bleeds can mask the problem of underfueling and losing your period to underfueling. So the underfueling, and that would include low carb. There's a bit of debate about that, whether it's just a low calorie effect or whether the low carb, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts, but I mean, certainly as we know, low, going higher, higher protein, lower carb has an appetite suppressing effect. So women do tend to just then eat less on average, which I'm sure factors into it. I, through my lens, I do think that some women are also sensitive to carb intake specifically by sensitive, I mean they're the hypothalamus, or the part of the brain that's controlling the menstrual cycle is waiting for signals from all the different macronutrients, especially protein and carbohydrate, and waiting to see that there's enough coming in to be able to make a baby, because that's ultimately what this is about. Even if you don't want a baby, that's what having a natural menstrual cycle is about. And I, what I would surmise, because my background is actually evolutionary biology, I see a lot of things through that lens. Um, I think women with a ancestry of agrarian or like starch-eating ancestors are more likely to be calibrated to that level of macronutrient intake in terms of their reproductive potential. There is something called a ovarian set point that is you know, a genetically kind of cal- a genetic calibration of ovarian. Well, by, when I say ovarian, I mean like the whole hypothalamus pituitary ovarian axis. That that communication is makes sense, right? Like it would be calibrated to you know fairly recent history, maybe even some thousands of years of what your ancestors were mm-hmm. eating. I hope that's not too technical for your <laughs> listeners, but that's I think that's quite. It makes sense why some women. Or like, oh, I'm thriving, I'm doing awesome on low carb, I have no problems. It probably depends on their sport and their genetics to a large degree and age to some degree because younger women are more sensitive. But let's say you've got a young woman sensitive to needing some carb intake to be able to ovulate, generally under fueling. She's going to lose her period a bit. Like, you know, it, it progresses from first going to shorter luteal phase that's the first kind of step along the way so the cycle gets disrupted she may not even be aware of that because the bleed could still be timed appropriately but she's not getting the progesterone which is the luteal the post-ovulation hormone coming through that could actually result in heavier flow which is sort of interesting actually you can get this it can be lighter or heavier at that stage of early disruption and then progressing to to what are called anovulatory cycles, so just maybe some sort of either regular or irregular bleeding, but no ovulation present, which is why it's so important for anyone studying this that they confirm whether the athletes are ovulating or not. If we can talk about that a bit more. And then, of course, the final progression is nothing happening, like shutdown of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. That's... Um, in the sports world, as you know, that's called REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport. In the non-sports world, that same thing is called hypothalamic amenorrhea. So it's, it happens amongst athletes and non-athletes. And it's a functional state. Like it's re- obviously highly reversible. As soon as you 
it's not a pathology. It's, it's, it's the brain making that decision. And as soon as you fuel and bring the food back in, the period will come back and the cycle will come back, even though that can take up to six months to come back once you've lost it. There's always a lag time. But just to be clear, I'm sure your listeners already know this, but it's not good to lose your period. It's not okay. It's um, from a, both from a general health perspective and I would argue from a sports performance perspective in that you, we need our hormones, estrogen, both estrogen and progesterone, and being in that estrogen-deficient state of REDS, mm. as you know, is bad. It's bad for the bones. It's bad for heart health. It's bad for performance, I would argue. It's, you know, it's not a good... It's okay to have gone there for a few months because you just accidentally didn't feel enough, but the priority should be to get the period back. Absolutely, yes. And yeah. speaking about ovulation and tracking that, uh, would you say tracking body temperature is the best way for people to be able to do that at home or what other methods can they use? I think body temperature is great. Of course, now you can do that with wearable devices. So you can actually, you don't even have to do put the thermometer under your tongue in the morning. You can just um, strap on a device and kind of have that confirmation that you're ovulating, that you know how long your luteal phase is, a good, robust, Post-ovulatory phase should be two weeks. If that's shortening, then that's an early sign of underfueling. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would actually say temperature tracking is the best. I mean, it's obviously you can also do a blood test for progesterone. You can do um, like different people are doing different. You can measure luteinizing hormone in the urine. That's you know these ovulation urine sticks. So different strategies that researchers are using, but certainly I think temperatures are the simplest. Mm. Yeah. And with intermittent fasting, now I am not at all a fan of any of my female athletes in their reproductive years going out and training faster in the morning. I think it's just it, just black and white, it shouldn't be done. But what are your thoughts on that? Again, I would think for the athlete population, I don't see how training fasting is can be beneficial. I'm not, like I said at the beginning, I'm not an absolute sports nutrition. Like in terms, of, I think it depends on the sport. And I think it actually does depend on, I mean, I guess I'm just channeling some of the information from uh, Kira and Jamie that I've talked to. I mean, I think depending on what phase of your training you're in, if you're in a lower intensity, I guess there's the different levels of, you know, intensity. If you're like at a, you know, just having a training day of kind of walking or a bit more, I think you can do that faster. And I think it obviously depends on what, how much um, glycogen you're using. And I mean, these are all mm-hmm. the sports nutrition things. So in general, if I have an athlete who comes to me and is asking diet questions, I usually sort of refer on to a sports nutritionist who understands mm-hmm. about the type of sport, the type of training you're doing for that sport, the phase of your cycle, and if and when you can do any um, gentle fasting training. But obviously high-intensity training no, I think it doesn't work in a fasting state. That's my understanding. Yes. Sorry, I should have clarified that too. Like, obviously, there's quite a difference between walking and doing an F45 class. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And actually, coming to that, so really high intensity training, like, there are many certain gyms out there that do, yeah. um, you know, the HIT type style. So, yeah. How does that impact female physiology? Like if, if a female's doing that, like say five, six days a week, is that doing more harm than good? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, again, I use the period as a barometer. Mm. This is where the period is actually quite handy. And mm. men don't have that. So I'm like, I feel sorry for them because they don't have this nice window into 
what's happening. I think um, I don't like the sound of high-intensity training five days a week for mm. my young women patients. Like, I'm concerned for them if that's what they're doing. I can tell you that. Mm. And I'll just say again, there are disruptions to the menstrual cycle, shortening of the luteal phase, losing their cycle are very clear red flags, warning signs that that is not working for them. It's depleting. They're not probably almost certainly not keeping up with the energy intake they need for that. Um, okay, keeping in mind it's always a lag time too. So they might feel great for like the first month and then four or five months later lose their period. I guess the other side of female physiology is the nervous system and the stress response system. Mm. And if that is being impacted by that level of training that can show up as sleep disturbance and you know reduced ability to cope with stress so i'd be watching those things mm. um i hope that's the kind of yeah answer i mean i just think it makes more sense to intersperse it with kind of gentler stuff i mean i i'm biased because i'm a my i'm a, a serious walker and so i just think walking is like so I don't understand why everyone doesn't just do. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I know I know people do like the higher intensity stuff, but for me, there's definitely days for you know something like walking. Mm. And was it's balancing the stress on the body too, isn't it? Like, um, yeah, a bit of stress is really important for adaptation, but chronic stress is is actually quite detrimental. Right. So yeah, right. So you can intermittent. Definitely, mm. some days of a higher intensity would be beneficial for almost everyone. I agree, but you have to. Yeah, sort of weigh out what that's doing to your female hormonal system and your stress hormonal system. Yeah. And last question around some of the the more sporting related um, topics is for females out there who are coming back from, say, quite disordered eating and have uh, temporarily lost their periods, but they're on the oral contraceptive pill, which obviously masks whether they're getting yeah. their um, natural healthy period back. Are there any other ways they can go about tracking if they would have a healthy cycle with obviously having to be on the oral contraceptive pill for other reasons? Hmm. I'm <laughs> box. Um, uh, no. No. Because, um, to be clear, the combined estrogen contraceptive, whether that's pill or neighboring or um, patches, it shuts down ovarian function and essentially the ovaries are in a induced menopause. So there's, they're not doing anything mm. and there's no, like if you were to measure estrogen and progesterone while a woman's on the pill, you'd find none. Um, you'd find the drugs, the contraceptive drugs, which of course are not hormones. So in answer to your question, like if you're asking, is there a way while you're on the pill to gauge, you know, recovery from under fueling, I guess, I mean, I guess I would acknowledge that at some point, even women on the pill having withdrawal bleeds, if they're severely underfueling, they will also lose their withdrawal bleed because it's just a thinning of the uterine lining that even the synthetic estrogen can't sort of mm-hmm. <laughs> kick into action. So, you know, they may get, they may regain pill the withdrawal bleeds if it had progressed to that point. But beyond that, no, like the, there's no hormonal system. Mm-hmm when you're on the pill, it's literally like switched off. Like you could just picture a big off switch is like your, you know, female hormonal system shut down mm. for the duration that you're on that, which is obviously that, that's one of my key messages in my work. You know, I, I want women to have their, I'm a cheerleader for hormones. I'm a cheerleader for women's hormones, our own hormones that we make by ovulating regularly, because it's not just for making a baby. We benefit from those, our own estradiol and progesterone in the same way that 
men benefit from their own testosterone. It's not a you know separate issue just for making a baby. So <laughs> I was just like meant when I said Pandora's box because this is where I start to get like this is the area of what I've been doing for the last twenty five years. And I guess I would just say. When you, it's interesting when you say, you know, on the pill for other reasons. So, I just, you know, obviously just acknowledge those other reasons can be avoiding pregnancy, mm-hmm. of which there are other methods for doing that, which we can touch on. Um, and then the, some of the other reasons can be for symptom management. And that's where my books come in. Because mm-hmm. basically, period of manual and hormone repair manual, my two books are for how to improve your periods and your hormones without the use of hormonal birth control. So... There's lots of strategies, even for people listening who think, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply to me because I've got PCOS or I've got endometriosis or the doctor said I had to take the pill. It's like there's always other options. And I've worked with, as you can imagine, in 25 years of patients, I've seen some very tough cases. If, you know, if you're listeners are sitting there thinking, oh, well, I'm the different on the toughest case. No, trust me. <laughs> I've seen, you know, women who I know periods can be very bad. Um, but one of my mantras in my books and if I want to do presentations is trust your body. It, it actually knows a lot more what to do than think. And usually there's a way through to symptomless. Well, there's usually a way through to relatively symptomless periods. Acknowledging that I will acknowledge that endometriosis is a tricky, tricky one. Yeah, very <laughs> tricky. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With with the contraceptions, can you talk us through the main ones available in New Zealand and some of their pros and cons? Yeah, so we'll do this. We'll do a very broad strokes um, discussion. So obviously, there's the, all the combined estrogen hormonal methods which we've been talking about. There's the progestin only methods, which would be like the implants. Um, or the depot injection, which I'll just say, I see that here in New Zealand. I never saw that in Sydney, Australia, like in I never or Canada. Like that's sort of not used in a lot of countries anymore because it's quite bad for bones and causes weight gain or can. So that's that's the depot. But um, the so the implants, the lower dose progestin only methods, they don't cause withdrawal bleeds. Just to be clear, they cause anovulatory cycles. So you'll be making estrogen only and no progesterone at all, and Progestins are not progesterone, so you're missing out on the benefit of progesterone. And they, um, the anovulatory or the non-ovulatory cycles on progestin-only methods can be irregular. Um, so then, and then there's the hormonal IUD, which I'll discuss separately because it's one of the only, not one of, it's the only method of hormonal birth control that permits ovulation. So you could still be having ovulatory, essentially natural cycles on the hormonal IUD. Some women are more sensitive to that progestin drug than others, and especially in the first year when the dose of the drug is higher, then you can actually switch to anovulatory cycles, but after that, bounce back to ovulatory cycles. So arguably for athletes, the hormonal IUD, I mean, not that I, I don't like absolutely love it, but I will say the hormonal IUD is kind of a nice choice because it, as you probably know it also dramatically dramatically lightens flow or can so then you get the benefit of still cycling your hormones doing what they need to do you still have a you know a follicular phase and a luteal phase but you're you know no intense bleed to deal with but it, of course it can have side effects as well then there's the copper IUD which is no hormones it's 
these are intrauterine devices. It um, can make periods heavier, though. That's definitely a consideration. Then um, condoms, <laughs> which I always mention because I think, yeah, we need to... I'm, you know, Gen X, so I was like, you know, I would be, condoms were definitely more of a thing, or at least I don't know if it was just in Canada in the 80s and 90s or what. I, I've seen, my patients here seem to not consider them as an option. I'm like, they're definitely, they're an option. There are, um, then there's all the fertility awareness-based methods, which means knowing when you're fertile and either abstaining or using condoms or with, I'll mention withdrawal. I mean, we can, obviously withdrawal is, or um, pull out or withdrawal is very much poo-pooed a lot of the time. But it, it, if you do it properly, and I talk about that in my book, it, it's a reasonable, not a perfect method, but it's not, you know, not, it's actually about the same as um, some of the other barrier methods. So fertility awareness is based on the principle that men are fertile every day, but women are only fertile for about six days a cycle. Actually, we're only really fertile for one day, but the sperm lives for five or six days. So that adds up. Um, so that is not rocket science. That can be figured out either by learning how to do it. And there's some organizations in New Zealand that teach you how to do that um, have it with instructors. I've just forgotten the name of the organization, but we can put that in the show notes. And... Or there's all various methods. There's something called DAISY, which I am a fan of. It's a little computer device that does that for you. It's based on a temperature, morning temperature rating. It's a little computer that calculates. It gives you a green, yellow, or red light. So green light means there is essentially pretty close to zero chance of pregnancy on that day. Um, yellow, red light means there's a very good chance of pregnancy on that day. And yellow light means it's not sure. So, yeah, you better treat that as a red day, essentially. Um, yeah, so those are some of the, the big ones. Those are all available in New Zealand. A lot of my patients have never heard of DAISY or fertility awareness method and are pretty surprised when they, they hear that's an option. And obviously, it's a great option because it doesn't involve doing anything. I mean, it involves taking your temperature, but it doesn't involve taking anything or changing your hormones. Or, yeah. Very cool. Yes. Yeah. And for... Um how we navigate our reproductive years and then get into perimenopause and menopause. Is there any information around, say, women who've been on oral contraceptive pill most of their reproductive years from, say, late teens into, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s, and how that may um, change their menopause journey? Like, does it potentially make it worse because they've suppressed their normal cycle for so long? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I write, I write about that in Hormone Repair Manual. I'll be honest, there's not a lot of research, <laughs> like so many things in women's health. Um, it's, okay, my clinical, there's a little bit of research. Uh, my clinical experience is that it, being on the pill all those years does make it harder. So certainly I, I provide a patient story in the book of if you, for example, have been on, a, especially one of the higher dose estrogen pills and were having withdrawal bleeds and essentially masked menopause, like if you have gone all the way, to, because you still go into menopause on the pill, like it doesn't, but you'll be getting pill bleed, so you won't see it. But you're, meanwhile, your ovaries have finished, you know, what they're going to do. And that, and so I could provide a patient story where that happened and she then just 
stopped the tail and went over what I call the estrogen cliff, like kind of straight into menopause from being on a, because the tail is essentially like a quite a high dose synthetic version of hormone therapy or like menopausal hormone therapy is lower dose is milder is actually mostly natural hormones these days. So that can be quite a rough transition. Um, in this patient's story, she says, oh, my, you know, start getting hot flushes and night sweats. Should I go back on the pill? Like, no, at this point, you go on to hormone therapy is the more logical. But if you, what, I think what the question you were asking is if you come off the pill earlier than that, when you're still what's called perimenopausal, the up to 10 years before the final period, that, that can be a little rough, too. Although in the book, I make the case for doing that because I have a chapter Three is called cycle while you can. Get some ovulatory natural cycles under your belt while you still can, while you've got, you know, five or ten or how many years it is until your final period because that's how you make estrogen and progesterone that are beneficial for long-term health. We do know that from the research. And so it's, I think the way I phrase it is each and every month of natural hormones is like a deposit into the bank account of long-term health. So it's building bone health, it's building heart health. And of course, that can be, that transition from essentially being in chemical menopause or having no menstruations to straight into your 40s, potentially having premenstrual symptoms, potentially having period pain, irregular periods possibly. I mean, those are all symptoms that can arise and they're not what the rest of my book is about, you know, how to, what are some strategies you can do to feel better. Also keeping in mind that your first few real periods, especially if you haven't had a real period in 10 or 15 years, can be, not always, but it can be stronger in terms of symptoms than the periods are actually going to be. Like it's just your body kind of getting used to that process again. So patients will say, oh my goodness, you know, all this premenstrual mood, I don't know if I can handle this, but it, I often can reassure people it won't always necessarily mm. be like that. Mm. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, I think it's a case to be made for having, I'm, I'm always trying to, if possible, get my patients to have natural cycles. Mm. Is there anything younger females can be doing to better prepare for menopause later down the track? Yeah, well, so let's think about women in her 30s, you know, perimenopause. So perimenopause, just to be clear, this is the, the most of the symptoms, if they're going to be symptoms, and not everyone gets symptoms, but most of the symptoms are during perimenopause, which is the five to 10 years before the final period, and also maybe just, just after the final period, which is the one year after the final period is still called perimenopause. So those are the years of symptoms. And then usually once you're a few years past your final period, you're you're good. I mean, you're still looking at, you know, reducing the risk of heart disease and other and protecting your bones and things like that, but there shouldn't be the neurological symptoms. So in terms of your question, like a woman in her 30s, she's maybe 10 years out from that. I guess there's a, a few things to say is, um, well, one, know that perimenopause happens a lot younger than you think. So when you start to feel weird and not sleeping and getting migraines at 42, that's what's happening. If you're not going crazy. You know, it's, it's, perimenopause potentially and two to not not be afraid of it either I mean I guess I've had it's interesting because my obviously my second book hormone repair manual is about perimenopause but I've had some feedback from readers who are much younger you know 30 early 30s who read it who the main 
takeaway they got is they just felt very reassured that it's going to be okay. You know, you sort of have this specter of perimenopause and menopause is very scary. It's sort of, you know, aging and symptoms and you sort of at some level don't want to know about it. But if we're all lucky enough to live so long, then we all go through it. And so this is about destigmatizing it. It's actually fine. Like from a, I mean, there can be symptoms, which hopefully my book will address, but it, from an emotional perspective, it's a lot better than I, when I was 30, I feared menopause in a way that now that I'm here, I'm like, it's fine. Actually, this is a whole other, I talk about in the book, this kind of cheeky sense of second girlhood that um, <laughs> kicks in and shirking duties, which, I hope to acknowledge to you might have played a part in why I had rescheduled our interview last week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to go on a big walk to the river in last week. Um, so that's so that just in answer to your question for younger women, it's going to be okay. And there's a lot. It's um, being in your forties and fifties is is different than what you expect. So and also finally. Um, to cycle while you can. That applies to women in their. 30s at any age really like I said I'm always trying to encourage women when possible to have their own natural menstrual cycles for benefit at the time but also for longer term benefit these deposits into the bank account of long-term health to um yeah for example even like very concretely like to build bone density you know improve bone density that will hold you so that, you know, because as you know, we start to lose bone density from about 35, 30, 35. And that's true for everyone. But if you, as a young woman, if you've managed to get a good level of, of bone density and healthy bones, then that's going to carry you to 85, 90, wherever you're going to live to. You reduce your risk of osteoporosis later in life. So, and this, I'll just spend a minute on the bone density thing because that's where there is some research. And we, we talked about losing your period to underfueling earlier, as you know. Bone, that's a big risk for bones. That's, that's not good. And, you know, if you, of course, if, if someone's to lose their period for years, then, you know, 20 years later at 50, when you enter menopause, that's a risk factor. Like everyone, doctors, everyone are thinking, oh, that's not good. You know, you went all those years about your period. That means you're going to need hormone therapy now for sure at 50, for example. Um, another example is obviously smoking is very bad for bone densities or other things. Um, other types of medications are too, but hormonal birth control, um, especially the combined, all types of hormonal birth control to some degree actually impair bone density. That is something that's starting to come out in the research now, and it makes sense that it's taken a few decades to start to get that, but we now know that essentially any type of hormonal birth control can slightly you know, decrease a young woman's ability to reach peak bone density. And there's some suggestion that she might be able to make that up once she comes off the hormonal birth control. The, the, of all the types of hormonal birth control, the most serious one in that regard is, as, as I mentioned earlier, is the depo injection, which is, in some countries, got a black box warning about it, about bone density, mm-hmm. which is the highest level of kind of warning they give in terms of side effects. So, yeah, that's, that's an answer to your question about what young women should be thinking about. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and um, just around the, the menopause side of things as well, is there any genetic predisposition to how some women cruise through menopause and it's no big deal and others just, you know, are really debilitated by quite severe symptoms? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to be a genetic component 
to that intersecting with, as you can imagine, lots of other things um, in terms of, well, you know, amount spent, time spent on hormonal birth control, we talked about that, but also just like just general underlying health. As a, here's something to consider. So periods are an expression of health. I talk about that in period of perimanual, as periods are a monthly report card. Perimenopause, in that analogy, is like our final, ex- well, final exam. I mean, it's not final. It's just about three or four decades to live after this. But, like, it's it's definitely kind of a reflection of lots of other things that are have gone on and that are going on in our life. And I would say that, but not also acknowledging the role of genetics and, a role, and acknowledging the role of environmental toxins as well play a big role. So I don't want this to sound like women to think that if they're having intense symptoms, it's something they've done wrong. It's not necessarily about that, but it, it's just, it just the fact that symptoms can be an expression of certain you know, gut health and stress levels and history of trauma and um, nutritional status. Those are all, some of those things are things we can improve. And I'll, the most, the simplest example and probably the strongest one it always comes down to this eventually in my perimenopause podcast is is um, alcohol and getting off alcohol. I my experience clinically and personally, personally as in myself and also my friends and my sister and alcohol is not friendly to the hormonal system or the brain, especially in our forties. When the, there's a perimenopause in our forties, is a recalibration process of the brain. And alcohol just derails that. It worsens sleep. It increases intestinal permeability is another factor that affects health. So I would encourage everyone listening to just really think about that. Mm-hmm. Try, give yourself the gift of a couple of months totally off it and see how that feels. And it can be a game changer. But what I say in the book and what I've found clinically is the two things of putting in place a good quality magnesium, preferably magnesium plus taurine, supplement powder, of which there's lots in New Zealand. We can access that quite easily. Plus quitting alcohol. Those two things together, I'd say 50% of the time for my patients, if they're having the neurological symptoms of perimenopause, including sleep, anxiety, increased migraines, that whole picture, night sweats, 50% of them, that's all they need to do. Mm-hmm. Like they're good after that. They're, you know, they just, they don't need hormone therapy. Although I'm not, I'm, I'm for hormone therapy when it's required, but it's, that's an example of something very simple with a big payoff. Mm-hmm. I, I do find it interesting in some of the women I work with as well, because um, alcohol is a, is a big one for so many reasons. And, you know, that they're really struggling with their symptoms. And you talk about how much of an impact alcohol can have, but they're often still quite hesitant to give up that glass of wine in the evening. But, it, yeah, if there's anything we can get across, it would be just trying for at least a month or two and seeing how much of a positive impact it can have. Mm. The way I approach it with my patients is to find other ways to make them feel good. Mm. Because they're soothing. We, I say they, we. I mean, I know it's like, you know, it's we when life is stressful and the nervous system is recalibrating and perimenopause is making it harder to cope with stress, understandably, you need something to feel better. That's, you're, you're allowed to have that. That's, you know, you deserve that. So from, through my lens, that can be other things. That's where the magnesium powder comes in because it can be very soothing. <laughs> and potentially you could look at other soothing strategies, um, 
and including, you know, like a gentle walk in the evening or and getting some, like exercise in the morning, getting some light in the morning can help as well, like a hot bath or, you know, some time away from turning the work computer off. I'm just thinking all the things that you might need to do to calm down and feel better. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, I want to give the example of, I'm, I'm going to give the example of CBD oil. This is the, um, so in Canada, as you probably know, it's legal in Australia, it's, basically legal as well to get the um so cbd oil is not intoxicating it's just the um the part of cannabis that's anti-anxiety without the hallucinogenic component and that's quite a quite a that's and there's some research around that for perimenopausal mood symptoms and sleep i included that in my book and when in new zealand of course we had our referendum on that last year and then it was voted no and I said to my husband but what about all the perimenopausal women who like need something to be able to calm down and sleep so um who thought about that population when they had that vote (laughs) (laughs) very good um just to finish up I'm just aware the time is um getting away on us I wanted to just ask a few questions around skin health so with acne especially hormonal acne what are some top tips you could give to those listening to um try to improve their hormonal acne yeah so the first thing to understand is that often if okay if it's post pill this and this which it often is so this would come after being on Jeanette which is Cipdrone or Yes, or there's different brand names, which is Jospernone. These are the drugs that are used as anti androgen or anti male hormone drugs that are used in those methods of birth control. Those, those pills, um, spermolactone, those different anti androgen drugs. So they clear skin very strongly, like very, 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 very strongly. And especially if you started on that as a teenager. The problem is there's eventually going to be a drug withdrawal. So when you stop that drug, the skin is going to go through. It takes a lag time. It usually takes a few months to kick in. But then androgens go up, sebum, skin oils flare up because they've been suppressed for so long. So this is post-pill acne. This can be quite bad. This can be what I describe in the book and what I see with my patients. This can be worse skin breakouts than you've ever had. Like, you know, you started the pill at 18 for skin breakouts, trying to come off it at 30, and suddenly you're getting this, like, crazy amount of skin breakouts. So the first thing to understand, I guess, is that it's not, it's it's a drug withdrawal reaction, right? Like, it's not a problem. It's not, it's not that you're broken. A lot of my patients, sort of, through their lens, I think as women, we do this, we think, oh, the problem's me. There must be something very, very wrong with my hormones that I'm undergoing this, and I must need the pill because, clearly, this is terrible. But what I would say, and I have an article about it, I have a section in the book about post-pill acne, um, once you keep, it usually lasts a year or two, which is a long time, I realize that, but once you get past that, often the skin will be fine. So it's not like it's always going to be that bad and you're always going to be struggling with that. And then, of course, the other factor is polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS, which causes skin breakouts. It can happen at any age, but we'll stay for the moment with post-pill and I'll just give you my top tips for what you do so um this is yeah so this you preferably start this while you're still on the pill or when you just come off it so you've got some treatment in place before it gets too bad because once the skin is fully flared up it can take quite a while to calm that down so i talk about um potentially avoiding normal cow's dairy not everyone is dairy sensitive only about one in three of us are but it's 
normal cow's dairy, normal A1 cow's dairy, can be quite inflammatory for the skin for a few reasons, I think. So that can be just a simple change to goat cheese or coconut yogurt during that time. And also avoiding soft drinks and fruit juices and concentrated sugars, which is not the same as going low carb. You could totally still have fruit and starches, and that's not a problem for skin usually. But the concentrated fructose can be. And then zinc at a minimum dose of 30 milligrams. I know in New Zealand we can only over-the-counter access 15 milligrams, which I find a little puzzling. But 30 is, for most people, I mean, check with your clinician if you're not sure, but 30 is safe. You just need to, to always take it with food because zinc on an empty stomach can make you feel sick. There's a few clinical trials using zinc for skin. It's quite a simple, nice solution. Zinc is particularly low in a plant-based diet, so anyone plant-based listening would really take note. You, you don't need to test. If you're plant-based, you, you need zinc. Mm-hmm. That's just straight out. And then another supplement I use for the post-pill Breakout situation is something called DIM, methane. It's a, um, it's also used kind of to lower estrogen, but it, but it has a totally separate mechanism, which is to um, shelter or kind of block androgen receptors. It has an anti-androgen effect, and it's um, quite popular for mm-hmm. skin. So that would be something my patients would use. I talk about some other strategies in the book, antimicrobial herbal medicines and things. Yeah, so that's the skin in a nutshell. Yeah. Very good. And before we jumped on the podcast, actually, you mentioned about, um, well, not plant-based diets, but veganism. Can you tell us your thoughts on veganism and females, please? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I'm nervous because I don't know what your listeners' views are on this. I, as a evolutionary biologist, and a clinician of 25 years, I feel like an exclusively, like strictly exclusively plant-based diet is not a good idea um, for it because of its low nutrient density. I just feel like initially it could feel quite good. And I think a lot of the initial benefits, like this feeling of lightness, this feeling of it can clear up skin, it can help period pain, a lot of that's switching to no dairy. So no dairy is a big change, like it's a beneficial change for a lot of people. And of course, exclusively plant-based diet incorporates that. So there can be kind of a honeymoon phase. But depending on genetics, to some extent, the, nutri- the nutrient deficiencies will start to kick in. So I'll give an example of what I mean by genetics. So as you probably know, there's different... So we, um, vitamin A, preformed vitamin A, retinol, we can only get from animal foods. We can also make retinol from beta carotene, but we can only do that to some extent depending on our the, our enzyme that does that. And some people are really good at doing that and some people are really terrible at doing that. So people, that's an example of one area where I think an exclusively plant-based diet will catch up faster for some people than others will start to um, manifest. It often, I think, mood symptoms are some of the first symptoms that start to come on lower immunity. Disrupted periods in some form. I mean, this is my my experience and I I have a blog post called um, what a plant-based diet does to your periods and I sort of share my observations I've got tons of comments on there of people claiming their periods have been fine so you know that there's you have a look at those comments you can chime in I'm very I'm very concerned about it I guess my when a patient tells me 
she's exclusively, and I'm say, I say strictly plant-based because obviously plant foods are excellent. Mm. And I'm myself like, you know, 85% plant-based. <laughs> a normal omnivore diet is mostly plant foods, including, you know, lentils and you know, all, everything. It's very beneficial for you. But I would say an omnivore healthy diet also has at least some portion of animal foods coming in for their nutrient density, for their zinc and vitamin A and choline and selenium and iodine and vitamin B6 and vitamin B2 and B12. Obviously, these are all things that are higher in plant foods. I'm sorry, in animal foods. <laughs> in animal foods. <laughs> but when a, when a patient tells me she's um, exclusively plant-based, my reaction, this is my genuine reaction, I've shared this sometimes, is I just say, okay, well... I feel my heart sink a little bit. I'm like, okay, realistically, we're just now going to have to lower our expectations of how healthy you can be. Like, I will be lowering my expectations. Like, you know, when we first sit down together, I'm like, great, okay, we're going to, you know, do this and regulate your period and no period pain and have all these goals. But if if, if plant-based is non-negotiable, then I, as a clinician, lower my expectations. So that tells you something, I think. That's, those are my concerns. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble with your listeners. I know it's quite a political thing as well. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. <laughs> no, thanks yeah. for sharing your opinion. And yeah, I guess yeah. as clinicians, it's um, do no harm, but you also have to respect other people's decisions and um, sure. around their eating too, I guess. And yeah, I try and support people in whatever way is best for them. Um, but if they re- you know, re- have really strong views on being a vegan, then you have to try and do your best to support that. Um, yeah. But I, I agree with where you're coming from too. Like there's only so much you can do sometimes depending on their health situation that can get them back to maybe where they want to be. Um, and I, the other thing I find with really athletic people who maybe follow more plant-based is just the volume of food they have to eat to try and get enough energy and nutrients is very challenging. And sometimes because of that volume, that they're almost unintentionally under eating um, because there's yeah. just not that nutrient density you can get from the other foods that would be in like an omnivorous diet. Uh, so that's another yep. challenge as well. And not only that, but you often have to supplement for all those um, key vitamins and minerals that you'd be getting naturally from your um, animal foods, like, you know, B12, um, iron, <laughs> etc. Zinc. So, zinc, yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and you know it's hard enough as an active female who's who's got a regular period to keep up your iron stores, let alone following plant based. It makes it very challenging. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's true. It sounds like we're pretty much on the same page, and I, I agree. I mean, I, I my patients, I don't strong arm them or insist that they eat animal foods if they don't want to. I mean, mm. of course, that's their decision. Um, I'm just yeah mm. like, concerned for them. Put it that way. Yeah. Cool. Well, Lara, it's been a pleasure having you on. I'm aware you have to scoot away soon, so I won't take too much yeah. of your time. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm sure those listening have found it really interesting. And yes, if um, you haven't read them already, I strongly encourage everyone to read your books, The Period Repair Manual, which I wish I read when I was a lot younger. <laughs> and <laughs> also the Hormone Repair Manual. They're fantastic reads. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Kushla. It was great to meet you. You too. Thanks, Lara.